will be to meditate on verses 36 through 38. But in order to collect some conditional context leading into this section, we'll begin reading from verse 31. John 13, beginning in verse 31. When he had gone out, speaking of Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will cr not crow till you have denied me three times. Before we open this up, let's seek the Lord's grace in our time. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have given us another opportunity to see your Son. We thank you that you sought us and you found us. And we thank you that we are not here this morning because of our own wisdom or our own moral courage, because, of, because we are somehow wiser than others, but because you and your kindness have wooed us and you've broken down our hearts of pride and you have shown us our need. And Lord, we are needy people. And we look forward to the reading of your word. We look forward to your presence amongst us. And so we ask for you, please be with us and help us this morning. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In this section of John's Gospel, John recounts for his readers the events in the dialogue between the Lord and his closest disciples on the night when he was betrayed. The events of chapter 13 occur in a private setting where these 13 men are gathered to eat supper together during the week of the Passover. These men have spent a great deal of time together over the course of Jesus' earthly ministry for the past few years, and now they find themselves reclining at a table without the noise of crowds and the associated commotion of the Lord's entrance into Jerusalem. Over the last few weeks, together we've observed the sequence of events through the evening leading up to verse 36. Now, when reading through John's gospel account, it's important that we understand it as a narrative. This book is a collection of events, acts and words between people. While John includes certain interpretive insights and makes editorial points along the way, the style and the flow of the book is a narrative account of historical events that took place while Jesus was on the earth. John has selected and written his material with intent, as described in chapter 20, verse 31. His goal is pastoral and evangelistic. His account is largely an eyewitness testimony of conversations and activity. As we read this, we should immerse ourselves into the scene as if we were one of the twelve. These men did not know the final story when these things occurred. They did not know what would happen over the next 24 hours or the following days, weeks, and decades of their lives. 
They did not have a copy of the New Testament scriptures describing Christ's death and resurrection, the establishment of his church, and the spread of the gospel throughout the ancient Roman Empire. They were living with Christ, listening to him, watching him, and interacting with him and each other during his ministry. They lived these events in real time, so we would do well to put ourselves in their shoes in these moments and take careful note of how Jesus speaks and behaves towards them. In considering the text before us this morning, our outline is going to be very simple. It's going to consist of two main points. First, we will observe Simon Peter, the disciple, and second, Jesus, the good shepherd. The approach we'll take is we will walk over the text multiple times, each time looking through a different lens, drawing observations on each pass from different angles. First, let's examine Simon Peter, the disciple. We'll take note of, number one, his desire to follow Christ and his confident commitment. In order to better understand Simon and his dialogue with Jesus at this point, we need to ensure that we have a basic understanding of his relationship with Jesus leading up to this conversation. Seeking to draw conclusions or insights from a single conversation here, taken in isolation, could be misleading. Throughout his book, John includes multiple details specific to Simon Peter's interactions with and responses to Jesus' actions and words. Simon is mentioned more frequently than all of the other disciples in John's gospel and throughout the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He is given a profile in the various accounts retelling Christ's earthly ministry, which surpasses that of the other eleven. Simon is observed expressing the most sincere confessions of faith in Jesus as the Messiah. He is also found questioning, trying to correct, and even rebuking the Lord. Simon demonstrates passion and real faith in his interactions with the Lord, often boldly stepping out in front of the other eleven. He's first introduced to Jesus in John 1, verse 40 and 41, by his brother Andrew, who had been a follower of John the Baptist. It's at this very first meeting with the Lord where Jesus gives Simon his new name, Peter, which means rock. Later on, Luke 5 records that Jesus is teaching a great crowd at the lake Gennesaret, while Peter and some of his companion fishermen are mending their nets nearby. Jesus gets into Peter's boat, tells Peter to move the boat to deep water, and cast his net. Peter hesitatingly complies after informing the Lord of the fruitless labors of the previous night's fishing expedition, but soon finds himself pulling a huge catch of fish ashore. Peter immediately reacts and falls on his knees and asks the Lord to depart from him because he's a sinful man. And in this occasion, Jesus gently responds, telling him not to fear, and commissions him to a new calling to be a fisher of men. At this point, Peter leaves his previous calling and follows Jesus. Sometime after this, Matthew records the account of Jesus walking on the sea to his disciples in Matthew 14. And Peter's bold request that the Lord call him to himself on the water. So the Lord calls Peter, and he begins to walk on the water to Jesus. But in the moment, he grows afraid of the wind and begins to sink. And in desperation, you remember he calls out to the Lord for rescue and is saved from perishing by Jesus' outstretched arm. Now we move forward in time to Matthew 16 and John 6, and we record Peter making some of the most well-known professions of faith in Jesus found in Scripture. In John 6, on the occasion of several of Christ's disciples choosing to leave him after some of his difficult sayings about being the bread of life, Jesus asks the twelve if they would leave him as well. And Peter responds with a heart-revealing exclamation, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter has come to connect himself to Jesus. He has found that there is no other source of eternal life outside of him. For Peter, he has nowhere else to go. And it is immediately after Peter's profession 
when the Lord draws a connection between Peter and the meaning of his name to Christ's building his church on him in a manner such that the church will never fail. Moving forward now to the immediate context of the night of our text. John begins the account in chapter 13 with an editorial statement of reflection looking back and characterizing the constancy of Christ's love towards his disciples, leading even to his own death. John conveys the shepherding care in the heart of the Son of God towards his own disciples and works that theme out in the narrative over the next several chapters. We first read Jesus adorning himself with the garments of a lowly servant and washing the feet of the twelve. But in response to this service, Peter remarks to Christ that he will never wash Peter's feet. Peter is seeking to show respect and honor for the Lord. However, Peter misses both the symbolism and the Lord communicates the example he is giving. So Jesus takes the moment to teach Peter about his need for continual cleansing by the Lord. After teaching them to follow his example, the Lord then discloses that one of them will betray him. Well, Matthew and Luke indicate that all the men begun questioning which one of them was the traitor. John gives us additional insight and has us seeing that Peter motioning to John as he sits right next to the Lord that who is, who is he referring to? And Peter asks him, motioning to him to ask the Lord. Well, the Lord apparently responds quietly enough to John that the others don't hear him or figure it out because when Judas ends up leaving, John says the other men did not know where he was going. So now at the transition in this evening, Jesus briefly remarks on his glorification, tells them that they cannot follow him where he is going, and gives the eleven the new commandment of love. And it's at this point where we see Peter's initial question, Lord, where are you going? John does not record Peter engaging with Jesus over the new commandment. Instead, his immediate concern is where the Lord was going. The Lord had just given them a new commandment and a particular imperative. While it's possible that there was further conversation concerning this commandment, we don't have a record of it. In fact, Luke records that his disciples had just earlier been engaged in a conversation about which one of them was the greatest. The Lord's example of serving them through the very lowly act of washing their feet would have formed a stark relief against the backdrop of their understanding about greatness and their postures towards one another. But in any case, Peter is paying attention. And the Lord's words are cryptic, and he's curious. But there's more than curiosity behind Peter's question. Peter is very interested in the Lord's whereabouts. Peter's fellowship with Jesus has been physically and geographically personal. He has walked with, talked with, and eaten with the Son of God. And Jesus is now revealing more clearly that it was coming to an end. He has repeated this proclamation twice now within a few days, once to the Jews outside his circle of disciples and now here with his close friends, and Peter wants to understand. Peter's question is a clue into his heart, and this is the first subpoint we'll open up. Peter's desire to follow Christ. Friends, our words reveal what is in our hearts. The answers we give to questions others may give us are largely instructive and insightful as to what is in our hearts. Furthermore, the questions we ask reveal what is important to us. The interests of our hearts are revealed in what we seek. Proverbs 10:11 teaches, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Jesus also says in Matthew 12, 24, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We typically know this to be true when it comes to our general statements and conversations, but perhaps we do not consider enough how the inventory of what our curiosities are are a signal and a reflection of our soul's real cravings. Well, what does Peter want to know here in John 13, verse 36? He wants to know where Jesus is going. And why is he asking Jesus where he is going? Because he wants to follow him. He wants to know where he is going so that he can follow him. His first question could appear simply as a matter of curiosity if it's taken in isolation. 
Jesus has been known to speak in cryptic ways, and he's not always readily understood by those who hear him. He's now spoken twice about his leaving, both to the Jews in John 7, and now to his 11 closest friends here on earth in John 13. On both occasions, he's been notably vague and opaque. Where I am going, you cannot follow. If we put ourselves in Peter's mind, or that of any of the 11, it makes sense for us to be curious about the statement that Jesus is intentionally vague. In fact, this is exactly what the Jews did in John 7. They pondered and discussed it among themselves. Christ's words evoked wonder and curiosity for them, but their interest took a different shape with, than in John 7 than it does with Peter in John 13. The Jews in John 7 were seeking to arrest Jesus. They wanted to know where he was going so they could take him. And their motives were jealousy, envy, and anger. But Peter's motives are different. This is made more clear by Peter's second question. Notice that Jesus does not answer Peter's first question. Where I am going, you cannot follow me now. Jesus largely just restates to Peter that he can't follow him now, but he doesn't tell him where he's actually going. So at this juncture, Peter changes his question and gets right to his point. Lord, why can I not follow you now? Peter has left his full-time work as a fisherman and has followed the Lord. He boldly stepped out and walked on the sea in response to Christ's call. Peter had stayed with Jesus while others decided to leave. Peter had demonstrated by actions that his profession, there was no one else to whom he could go, and that profession was genuine. Peter wanted to follow Jesus. But now notice the second part concerning Peter. Peter's desire to follow Jesus is accompanied by a confident commitment. In his second question, Peter does not stop and leave his question open-ended. He does not say simply, why can I not follow you now? He immediately bolsters his question with a claim about his own allegiance to the Lord. Why would he do that? Peter's statement immediately following his question provides a clue into what might, he might be thinking. The Lord has just told the twelve that one of them would betray him. It's not clear that the eleven knew it was Judas, probably because Jesus' conversation with John and Judas in verse 25 through 27 was quiet enough that they didn't hear it all. It's also reasonable to infer that the men didn't get this because they didn't know why Judas left. But we also know from Matthew that the men had previously been having a discussion about which one of them was the greatest. And Jesus gives them this new commandment that they should love one another as Christ loved them. Now, Peter is asking the Lord why he can't follow him now. And he is asserting his own personal allegiance to Christ. In light of Jesus' claim that there was a traitor in their midst, perhaps... Peter is wanting to clarify for the Lord that he's not someone the Lord can't trust. Maybe Peter wants to set the record straight. Neither the Lord nor any of the other men should doubt his commitment to Christ. You're saying I can't follow you now? Why not? Do you doubt me? If you doubt the others, Lord, you don't need to doubt me. But Peter doesn't stop there. He goes further. I am willing to go to prison with you. I am willing to lay down my life for you. Friends, Peter's come a long way. Here he was fishing and mending his nets, providing for his family and working in a business with his brother Andrew. Peter has no idea that God sent his son to the earth about 30 years prior to seek and to save those who were lost, calling to his own to follow him. John introduces Andrew to Jesus, John the Baptist, and Andrew introduces Peter to Jesus. Later on, Peter sees the power and word of Christ in the Sea of Galilee and on Christ's call to follow him. He leaves his life behind and follows after the Lord. He has seen Jesus heal people who have been blind from birth, lame, crippled, leprous, or ill with deadly fevers, He has witnessed a man resurrected from the dead 
simply at the Lord's spoken command. He has heard this rabbi from Nazareth, where he has been rejected and mocked, teach with authority, forgive sins, claim to be the Son of God, claim divinity, and promise eternal life to all who follow him. While so many others had rejected Jesus outright or had grown disaffected or offended by his own words and left him, Peter has not. Peter has come to know that he is the Son of God, and Peter has no one else to turn to. Jesus is Peter's Messiah. Jesus is Peter's Lord. Where was Judas? Judas had seen all of these things. He had seen and heard Jesus. He had been with him. The chief priests and the scribes had seen Jesus do this. Where were they? Where were Jesus' brothers? Why weren't they following Jesus? None of them were here. They weren't searching for Jesus so that they could follow him. But here is Peter. Peter had been drawn by God to see his son for who he is. The father had revealed to Peter who Jesus is, and Peter knew it. Peter's commitment to the Lord was real and genuine. He is not pretending. But Peter's confident commitment includes a measure of ignorance about himself. It's not tempered with humility and self-knowledge. Peter does not know himself completely. He thinks he does, and he speaks from that perspective. He is genuine and fervent in his commitment, and he wants the Lord to know it. But he does not know his own weakness. In the current circumstances, he feels that commitment fervently. As Jesus Jesus will later ask him three times, Peter loves the Lord. But Simon Peter does not know how much power a change in his circumstances over the next several hours will wield on his heart. Now, most of us have read the book. We've seen this movie before. When you think of Peter, do you think of Peter the failure? Or do you think of Peter the disciple? Do you find that your gaze tends to focus on those moments in his life, which are recorded in the Bible where he messes up and fails? Do you remember him for his faults, for his weaknesses, for his impetuousness? Or do you think of him as simply a follower of Jesus? Friends, if we are followers of Jesus today, we are no different than Simon Peter. We catch glimpses through a window into the life of a man from the past who saw Jesus for who he was, loved him, followed him, and failed. He genuinely loved the Lord, knew himself to be a sinful man, and knew that his only hope for eternal life was found by following Christ. Consider in your own minds, is this your posture? Do you pursue after Jesus and subject yourself willingly to die for him? Do you see the Lord that way? Is following him today more precious and valuable to your soul than the well-being and the life of your body? Peter gives us the opportunity to consider ourselves this morning. Do we have his heart? Do we want to follow Christ to this end? What are we willing to lose to keep pursuing him? Brother, now we should turn to our next major heading so that we may see Jesus, the good shepherd. Jesus, the good shepherd. First, let's take note of Jesus' preparation. In this, what I mean is the Lord works to prepare his disciples for what would happen over the next few days. Now, first, note first that Jesus explicitly tells the twelve that one of them will betray him. 
Judas had secretly gone out with the chief priests and he had conferred with them to betray Jesus in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. The chief priests had been plotting for some time, seeking a way to destroy him. But as, Le- as Peter would later preach about seven weeks later on the day of Pentecost, all the intentions and the actions of men were part of the sovereign plan of God. These men were seeking to murder the light of the world, but it was not hidden from his eyes. That plan included his being betrayed by one of his closest friends, but these 11 men had given up their lives to follow Jesus. The death of their Messiah would have crushed their hopes and their expectations. This is where we need to put ourselves in their shoes We know the way the story ends. We know what he was doing. We know his path. We've been taught it. These men still did not quite understand it. They had been committed to him. Add to that that they were about to witness one of their very own betray Jesus to the chief priests for a little bit of money. What would this have done to their confidence in Christ? What would it have done to our confidence in Christ? They were about to witness others mocking him as he was being murdered. That he saved others, he should save himself. Not knowing that it was his decision to not save himself through which he was actually saving his own. And it was in those hours before they saw him again when their faith would stumble. They would question everything they thought they knew. Jesus knew that, and he predicted it. And it is for this reason that the good shepherd's love for his own caused him to labor to prepare them for it. He knew that they were men who were made of dust, and he knew the constitution of the human soul. He was a man himself. So Jesus told them what would happen. And in so doing, he took much of the stinging power away from Judas' trail. He took a lot. He took much of the stinging power away from the authorities, the Jews who had plotted against him. He predicted it. He would maintain his claim on lordship. He would maintain his divine nature by his divine power to foresee and to prophesy the end from the beginning. Their belief that he is God could be maintained and strengthened by their recognizing that Jesus had full knowledge and presumably full control over what was about to happen. But now notice how Jesus prepares Peter in particular for what's about to happen. Peter comes on to the Lord and he presses him to explain why he can't follow him now. And he goes on to claim that he will die for Jesus. But take note of the Lord's response. There are two reasons why Peter cannot follow Jesus now. The first reason was bad news. And this is the reason that Jesus gives Peter. Observe both the Lord's manner and his matter here. Christ gently asks Peter a probing question. He turns Peter's exact statement around in a question. Peter says to him, I will lay down my life for you. And what does the Lord say? Will you lay down your life for me? This precise form of questioning is not changing the subject. It's not evasive. It's not harsh. Jesus is direct. Jesus is exact. And his words are are exacting. Jesus is going straight at Peter's heart. Peter has pursued him for answers and has been dissatisfied with his answers so far. So Jesus now responds to Peter's inquisitions bluntly. He crafts the arrow of his words and he fires it straight into Peter's soul. But what's his aim? Peter's self-confidence Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster 
will not crow till you have denied me three times. Friends, Jesus is not seeking to destroy Peter. He's helping him. He is preparing Peter for when his confidence will be shaken. Peter's comprehension of Christ and his mission is incomplete and incorrect. He does not fully understand the Lord's path. But he does know that if Jesus is going to die, he is right there with him. Peter is thinking a lot of himself. He probably doesn't even realize it because he's trying to be faithful to Jesus and he is being faithful to Jesus. He wants to pursue the Lord, but he does not know how he's going to react once the cost of following Christ comes knocking at his door. In the quietness of the upper room and in the vacuum of imminent danger, Peter's confidence is untested. Peter's strength of heart is not what he thinks it is. And his Lord knows it. He knows exactly what Peter will do before Peter does. And so Christ prepares Peter for his own failure. The Lord sets him up to know two things. First, that he will fall. And second, that the Lord already knows ahead of time that he will fall. And this is magnificently pastoral. Jesus gives Peter a brilliant hope for Peter to hold on to afterwards. After his failure, Peter will break down weeping and leave. And when he's alone, Peter will have been equipped by him who he just denied to remember and to contemplate Christ's words to him in this moment. And what will Peter reflect on? He knew. He knew me. He knew me better than I knew me. He knows me better than I know me. My friends, this would be the source of Peter's hope in a Savior who loved him from the beginning with full knowledge of who he really is and what he would really do. The Son of God loves his people with complete and infallible knowledge of the full depth and breadth and extent of their heart. He cannot be surprised by their sin. He will not be surprised by their failures. He knows your weaknesses before you do. He knows you and he knows what you are susceptible to, even those things which you have never been exposed to. He knows exactly when your affections will be drawn to other lesser things. He knows when you will wake up in the morning with a heart that is still prone to self-protection, self-pity, and self-love at the expense of following him fully. And he knows that you don't know it as clearly as he does. And he loves you. He loves you. Jesus' love does not need to be tested. His love has already been proved. And if you are his, there is nothing you will do to cause him to reconsider his love. Peter would experience this. And Peter would find at this juncture in his life that Christ's yoke is indeed easy. And his burden is truly light. At the very moment when Peter would find his faith falling headlong, this reflection about the one whom he is following would strengthen his faith in him. Losing all for this Savior has become lighter and easier 
than it was before. And this is the path to which the Lord calls his people. He makes us progressively see and experience more of him as we walk with him and as we abide with him. We fail and we sin. When we repent of our sins and confess our sins, we experience the fresh forgiveness he promises and we fall in love with him more and more deeply. And as we see him for who he really is, because he slowly shows us more and more of who we really are, we fall in love with him more and more deeply. And our previous affections lose more and more of their taste. Our taste buds change. Our appetites shift. And as C.S. Lewis once illustrated, we become less and less satisfied with making mud pies in the slums in exchange for a holiday at the beach. We see that our heart's desires slowly come to be for this Savior, not for His gifts, but for He Himself. Finding that there is less and less room in our hearts for its previous tenants. This is how the Lord sanctifies us. The world does not offer this kind of promise. It cannot. It cannot give us a burden to carry that feels like this. Its yoke is hard. It tries to give comforts and peace, but will, what will it do when we fail it and disappoint it? What will it do when we don't play by its rules? It does not have the capacity to handle us because it is made up of people like us. Our love for our fellow man, woman, and child is so conditional. It is so conditional. We are so frequently surprised, alarmed, offended, and incensed by each other's sin, our folly and our inconsistency. We struggle to get over them, don't we? Our love for our loved ones waxes and wanes based on their words and their actions. We work and we strive and we labor for years to get used to the weaknesses and failures and of our spouses, our children, our parents, our brothers and sisters, our friends, our fellow church folk, our leaders. But do even we really know their sin? Even the little bit that we see, how well do we know their heart? Could we love them with full knowledge of what they've done, of what they will do to hurt us or make our lives more difficult? Brother and sister, do you want to follow after a Savior who loves you this way? Is he attractive to you? Is your soul drawn to him? And does this make you want to be like him? Do you wish that those closest to you could love you this way? Do you want to love them with their current, seemingly never going away weaknesses and problems, just like the Lord loves you? There's something else that we need to consider about the Lord's words in this passage. And this is the second subpoint about the Lord, and that is regarding Jesus' path. Jesus' path. Jesus tells Peter and the other apostles that where he's going, they cannot follow him. He repeats it again 
after Peter's first question. Where I am going, you cannot follow me now. Remember earlier that I said that there were two reasons why Peter could not follow Jesus now. The first was bad news. Peter and the other apostles could not follow Jesus because they weren't ready. They were too immature. They were morally incapable of withstanding that kind of pressure. And Jesus knew that. And Jesus was protecting them. They needed to grow. But there's another reason why they could not follow him. And this reason was good news. Jesus was on a mission. And that mission had been foreordained by God and promised firsthand to our parents, our first parents, on the occasion of the first sin of mankind. His mission put him on a particular path en route to a goal. He was to crush the head of the serpent of old. He was going to free those who were oppressed by sin and by Satan. And he was the only one who could do it. He was the anointed one. He was the Christ. Where Jesus was going was only open for him to go. Only he could go to the cross, take our sins on his head and pay for them, bearing the just wrath of God due our sin, justifying all sinners whom he would call by his name into the fold of his kingdom. Peter could not die for Jesus. It was Jesus who would die for Peter. And this second reason why Peter could not follow Jesus is the gospel. And this leads us to our last point. Jesus' promise. Jesus' promise. Note Jesus' initial response to Peter's first question. Peter recognizes that the Lord indicates that he cannot follow him now. And so Peter hones in on this point. He says, why can I not follow you now? And the Lord asks Peter a rhetorical question and then directly tells him that that he will deny him three times that night. And this is bad news. This is disappointing. And this is alarming. Jesus is going somewhere that we can't go, and Peter is going to deny him three times. But let's look more closely at what the Lord said to Peter. Particularly observe that embedded in his answer is a promise to Peter. Peter cannot follow him now. Peter will fall that night and be unable to follow him because of his own moral weaknesses. But Christ's work, namely the success of that mission, will be the pretext, the jet fuel, and will be the foundation for Peter's following the Lord after. Peter's failure will not be final. It will not have the last word. The Lord's mission was to redeem his people by atoning for their sins and take them on himself. But the Lord's mission was also to build his church. And the Lord had a commission for Peter to be part of that mission. Peter could not follow Jesus to the cross because that was Christ's path. It was not his God had reserved a different path for Peter. The Lord had established Peter's path to take the gospel of his crucified and risen Savior to his people. Peter's desire to follow Jesus would culminate in a life of faithfulness 
to his calling as a fisher of men. And Peter will follow Jesus. And while following after Christ, Peter will soon experience another great catch similar to that which he experienced at the late Gennesaret when he left his first trade to follow Christ. But this time, Peter will see the Lord's harvest of men. Peter will follow the Lord. Christ will build his church on Peter and the apostles. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And friends, about 30 or so years later, Peter will follow his Lord to his own death. Peter will follow the Lord even in the manner of his death through crucifixion. And Peter will eventually follow the Lord through that same path paved by Jesus into heaven to finally be where he is. Peter will learn through his sin and his restoration that the way of discipleship with Christ is the way of a gentle master, a kind king, a compassionate Lord, and a good shepherd. Jesus is exacting. He will not have second place in our heart. But he will shepherd us through our weaknesses and through our temptations and our failures in those temptations. His yoke is easy because those who submit to it find his commands a joy to keep. Those who obey him do so because they love him. My friends, if in the integrity of your heart this morning, you cannot say with Judgment Day honesty that you're following Jesus like Peter, then this word is for you. Judas did not turn back and turn to Jesus. Judas did turn back from sin, but he turned into himself. Judas found no help there. All he found was despair. He tried to go to the world for consolation, and they told him to bug off and to see to it himself. The world was not ready to forgive him, to heal him, to encourage him to keep going, and to press on. And friends, it will not be for you. We live in a day and age when people are weighed down so heavily, and they're depressed, and they can't find love, and they can't find acceptance, and they can't find peace. And people are taking their lives at a rate which is fairly unprecedented. Oh, that they would find this Savior who accepts us as we are. On the other hand, friends, Peter, Peter found a Savior that was willing to forgive and who loved him and was eager to commission him, not just forgive him, but to commission him for a life of service for him. As Simon Peter came to see, Jesus of Nazareth is the very Son of God and Savior of the world. And he is the only one who has words of eternal life. More than that, he has eternal, he is eternal life. And my friends, all who call on this Savior will not be cast out, but they will be saved. Note Peter, this disciple. He's a prototype. He is not different than us. We are not different to him. His following Christ is a model for our following Christ. When Peter failed, he did not turn in on himself. He remembered Christ's words. He saw the risen Christ, and the Lord restored him. My friends, we can follow this Jesus. We are equipped to follow this Jesus. 
May we follow this Jesus. And may our hymn be something like, let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for the incredible grace that you shower on us daily. We do not know ourselves, but Lord, we do love you. And we, like Peter, we wish to follow you. There are moments in our lives when our following is weak. And Lord, we get distracted. We love other things. There are times when following you is costly. And Lord, we second guess. But Lord, it is in those moments when our faith is not in our faith. It is not in our ability to follow, but it is in your ability to save. You have sought us. You will not let us go. You did not let Peter go. You know us, and you know our sin. And Lord, you love us, and we are thankful. May this morning our hearts be warmed, and may our sins, which so easily weigh us down, be lightened. Lord, we ask that you would give us faith to believe these things. And we pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.